0: Well, we come now to our introduction to systematic theology, and we are continuing to look at the doctrine of God's eternal decree. Now, if you recall, in the last two lessons, we considered the nature and extent of God's decree. We saw that God's decree is wise, it's free, it's unchangeable, and it's holy. And we establish from Scripture that God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass in time. There are no people, there are no actions, and there is no period of time that fall outside of God's eternal decree. And this includes, obviously, logically, the sinful acts of men. But it is at this point where many people start to have problems with this doctrine. Now, we have already looked at some passages that speak to God for ordaining sinful acts, such as the conquest of pagan kings, as mentioned in Isaiah. And then we looked at the murder of Jesus Christ, which according to Peter in Acts 2 happened, quote, by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, verse 23. But what I want to do in the next two lessons is spend some time on this question of the relationship between God, his decree, and the existence of evil. It probably goes without saying that the existence of evil in this world has long been a stumbling block for many people, for many reasons. For unbelievers, the existence of evil is proof that either A, God does not exist, or B, that if there is a God, it's not the God of the Bible that the Christians speak of. Christians, after all, assert that God is good and that God is omnipotent, that is all-powerful. And yet we still acknowledge that evil exists. And so one of the common arguments you'll hear from non-believers goes something like this. Well, how can all three of those assertions be true at the same time? That is, if God desires to rid the world of evil, but he can't do it, then he's not all-powerful. And if God can rid the world of evil, but chooses not to do so, then he's not good. And so it is argued that if God created a world in which evil exists, that it is impossible for that God to be both good and all-powerful. And this argument is enough for many unbelievers to just simply state that, well, God doesn't exist. Or for other unbelievers to assert that if there is a God, it's not the God that Christians speak of from the Bible. Now that's usually what you hear from the unbelievers But as I've mentioned already the existence of evil also poses a dilemma even for those who profess to believe in God and in the Bible they are not stumbling to believe in God per se but to believe in God as he is understood and presented by some of our reformed confessions like our Westminster Confession of Faith in other words and I know you've all met them there are Christians out there who would abhor reformed theology Or Calvinism not because they don't believe in God or that he's good or that he created the world but that they cannot accept the belief that God foreordained everything that comes to pass and so from these people you will hear arguments like well if God has foreordained everything that comes to pass and that includes evil then that makes God the author of evil and it makes God responsible for evil not man or another argument here, may hear, which we uh, read in our last lesson for Robert Raymond. If God knows all things, then he must infallibly know the future. And if he infallibly knows the future, then he must infallibly know all the future acts of men. And if he infallibly knows all the future acts of men, then these acts must be certain of occurrence. That is, they are certain to occur because God knows them. But if, if their acts are certain of occurrence, then men are not free. To choose and act as they want. So, accordingly, they conclude that divine omniscience is incompatible with human freedom. And so, even from professing Christians, you will hear arguments against Reformed Christians that God did not foreordain everything that comes to pass because that would make the God the author of evil. It would make God responsible for evil, and it would in turn make men into mere robots or puppets, creatures with no real freedom and no free will. If we were to take all these arguments together and sum it up, we could do so with this question. How can the existence of God be harmonized with the existence of evil? Well, as the late and great Reformed Presbyterian theologian and philosopher Gordon H. Clark wrote, The system known as Calvinism and expressed in the Westminster Confession of Faith offers a satisfactory and completely logical answer. And I want to talk about what that answer is and defend it. But before we do, let's consider some alternatives and why they fail. First, one solution to harmonizing the existence of God with the existence of evil is to simply avoid the problem altogether by positing that God does not exist to begin with. That would seem like an easy solution, right? Now, obviously for us, that's completely out of the question, but for atheists, it's not. For them, this is the simplest and best way to resolve the problem. If you get rid of God, you get rid of the problem. In his book, Atheism, The Case Against God, George Smith writes briefly, the problem of evil is this. If God knows there is evil but cannot prevent it, he is not omnipotent. If God knows there is evil and cannot or can prevent it, but desires not to, he is not omnibenevolent. But as another late and great Reformed Presbyterian theologian, Greg Bonson once asked, For whom is evil logically a problem? That is a great question, and one that apparently a lot of unbelievers don't fully appreciate. Let's think about it for a second. Take those three assertions by Christians that we have already Mentioned and ask yourself, where does the supposed problem come into into the picture? Is there anything logically inconsistent or a problem in asserting that one, God is good, and that two, God is all-powerful? Well, the answer is no. Those two premises alone are not the problem, we are told. Rather, we are told that the problem arrives when we add the third premise, that evil exists. But notice something here. This is what Greg Bonson points out. Notice that the unbeliever must assert that evil does in fact exist in order to argue against Christians, that its existence poses a problem for Christians who believe in a good and all-powerful God. But here's the kicker. How does an unbeliever account for evil? What exactly is evil, according to the unbeliever? Can they even define evil and define it in such a way that it would even force a problem on the Christian to begin with? If they try to argue that good and evil are, well, they're determined by popular opinion, for example, which is a very common argument, then what happens when the majority of people disagree with what you think? What if some ruler of a nation decided that he wants to kill off all the atheists. And most of the people of that nation agree that, yeah, this is a good thing to do because they're annoying. <laughs> so let's just get rid of all of them. Do you think any atheist is going to go along with that? Of course not. They would be screaming from the rooftops about how wrong that is. Atheist lives matter, right? But is morality to be determined by popular opinion or not? We have moral relativists running around today telling us that, well, it's up to the individual to decide what is right or wrong. Well, okay, so if I walk in your house, beat the snot out of you, take all your valued possessions, that would be okay, right? Well, no, Jason, that'd be wrong. Well, why? Well, because you're hurting somebody. Well, so what? (laughs) First of all, what is harm? And is harm even a bad thing? And is it even a bad thing all the time? You know, if a serial killer were roaming around Lakeland right now just taking people out, left and right, and our good sheriff comes with his crew and takes them out and fills them up with holes, did the sheriff harm that serial killer by filling him with lead? Yeah, I'm pretty sure he did. (laughs) Was that the right thing to do? I don't know of a single atheist that would argue that it wasn't in that case. They would be relieved. We took care of a problem here. Again, that begs the question. So what is harm? What is harmful? Is harm always a bad thing or is it a good thing? Johnson writes, quote, <clears throat> Unbelievers complain that certain plain facts about human experience are inconsistent with the Christian's theological beliefs about the goodness and power of God. Such a complaint requires the non-Christian to assert uh, the existence of evil in this world. What, however, has been presupposed here? Both the believer and the unbeliever will want to insist that certain things are evil. For instance, cases of child abuse. And they will talk as though they take such moral judgments seriously, not simply as expressions of personal taste, preference, or subjective opinion. They will insist that such things are truly, objectively, and intrinsically evil. Even unbelievers can be shaken from their easy and glib espousals of relativism in the face of moral atrocities like war, rape, and torture. But the question, logically speaking, is how the unbeliever can make sense of taking evil seriously, not simply as something inconvenient or unpleasant or contrary to his or her own desires. What philosophy of value or morality can the unbeliever offer which will render it meaningful to condemn such atrocity as objectively evil? The moral indignation which is expressed by unbelievers when they encounter the wicked things which transpire in this world does not comport with the theories of ethics which unbelievers espouse, theories which prove to be arbitrary or subjective or merely utilitarian or relativistic in character. On the unbelievers' worldview, there is no good reason for saying that anything is evil in nature, but only by personal choice or feeling. This is why I'm encouraged when I see unbelievers getting very indignant with some evil action as a matter of principle. Such indignation requires recourse to the absolute, unchanging, and good character of God in order to make philosophical sense. The expression of moral indignation is but personal evidence that unbelievers know this God in their heart of hearts. They refuse to let judgments about evil be reduced to subjectivism. What we find then is that the unbeliever must secretly rely upon the Christian worldview in order to make sense of his argument from the existence of evil, which is urged against the Christian worldview. Anti-theism presupposes theism to make its case. And so the problem of evil is thus a logical problem for the unbeliever rather than the believer as a Christian, I can make perfectly good sense out of my moral revulsion and condemnation of child abuse, a non-Christian cannot, end of quote. So as we can see, taking God of the picture simply doesn't work. Well, for those of us who want to leave God in the picture, there have been various alternatives to reform theology in the attempt to harmonize the existence of God with the existence of evil. One route has been by those who profess belief in God, is to limit God or restrict God in some way, to make the infinite God finite. Some will limit his power, and others will limit his knowledge. Well, some limit God's power by asserting that God is just simply not involved with creation. Perhaps God got the ball rolling in the beginning by creating the world and creating man. But once it got rolling, he stepped back from it all and just allows it to go on and do whatever it's going to do. Well, obviously we've seen enough scriptures in these lessons so far, especially in our last lesson to know that this idea is false. In Romans 11:36, for example, remember we read for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever, amen. And also in Ephesians 1, verse 11, Paul writes, In him also we have attained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Notice Paul states here that God is, one, working, and two, working all things according to the counsel of his will. Obviously, then, God is not an absentee landlord. While others might try to restrict God by limiting his knowledge, they argue that God does not know certain things and he's off the hook. H. Roy Elseth gives an example of a parent that knows with certainty that his child would go out and murder someone if he was given a gun. Elseth argues that if the parent did give the gun to the child, then the parent would be responsible for that crime. However, if God was unsure about the outcome, then God would not be culpable for that act. Only the one who committed the act would be guilty. But again, like this other attempt to limit God, we have already seen enough scriptures, both in these lessons and even the lessons J.P. taught on on the doctrine of God. Such a view runs contrary to scripture. We saw, for example, in Isaiah that God declares the end from the beginning. We saw that God in Isaiah clearly knew and spoke ahead of time some 200 years before it happened about the conquest of the pagan king Cyrus and that God's knowledge of things yet to occur is one of the things that God himself highlights and points to as a defining characteristic of his uniqueness as the one and only true God in contrast to the false gods and idols who are dumb and can't speak of things yet to come. Again, Isaiah 41, bring in your idols to tell us what is going to happen. Declare to us things to come. Tell us what the future holds so that we may know that you are gods. I have stirred up one from the north and he comes, one from the rising sun who calls on my name. Who told of this from the beginning so that we could know or beforehand so that we could say that he was right? No one told of this. No one foretold it. No one heard any words from you. I was the first to tell Zion, look, here they are. To that we can add Psalm 147, verse 5. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. 1 John 3, 20, For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. And then Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You know all things. So we see, beloved, Scripture scripture simply rules out limiting the knowledge of God to only some things. Well, then third, this then leads us to another alternative theory that those who profess God posit to harmonize the existence of God with evil, and that is this theory of free will. Now, this is where things might start to get a little confusing for people. After all, you might say, well, doesn't our confession have a chapter entitled, free will and it does but what we need to consider is that the term free will means different things to different people and what the reformers meant by it is different than how it is most popularly defined so what is it that's argued? well many of those who assert free will agree with us that God knows all things they don't wish to limit the knowledge of God because the Bible is too clear on that issue and they also seemingly want to protect the goodness of god in fact it is because of their desire to protect the goodness of god that they posit this theory of free will their theory of free will is that when a man is faced or that a man is faced with incompatible courses of action that he is able to choose any one of those courses of action just as freely as any other course of action Wikipedia words it this way free will is the ability to choose between different possible courses of action unimpeded. Notice the key word there is unimpeded, meaning there's nothing standing in the way. there's no obstacles to prevent a person from choosing that course or this course or this course. Now I want you to notice something very carefully here. There are two words in question here. the word free, in the word will. We are not questioning whether man has a will or not. We are not questioning that men make choices, that men choose courses of action. You did so coming to church today. Otherwise you wouldn't be here. Now there are actually people out there who don't even believe that, but we don't have time to get into all that. And that's not what we're saying. We are agreeing that men do make choices, real choices and that men have a will. But it's when you throw in the word free in front of the word will that we start to have problems and questions. Because now you're not just simply saying that men make choices, but that their choices are free from something. Unimpeded. It is the theory that man's choices are free from any control or influence internally, externally, physically, or divine. And of course, in this context, it is especially that man's will is free from any determining act of God. Because after all, that's the objection, right? They say, no, God has not foreordained everything that comes to pass because he gave man free will. God knows what man is going to choose, unimpeded by anything, but God certainly did not foreordain those choices that men make. This is what what we are told. But again, understand the distinction. And I'm emphasizing this because oftentimes you'll hear people object to the notion that God foreordains everything by immediately saying, oh, so you don't believe men make choices. Men don't have a will. But understand that when you say something like that, you are treating will and free will as synonyms. But they're not. Beloved, it's one thing to say that we make choices. It's another thing to say that our choices that we make are free from any influence, any determining factors, whether internal, external, physical, or divine. Those are two totally separate issues. So this theory of free will is actually a very philosophically loaded theory. It's a theory that isn't merely about whether men make choices or not, but how and why they make their choices and how God in his sovereign rule relates to those choices. And so there are two main questions we need to ask regarding this theory. One, does the Bible teach this theory? And two, does it even solve the problem? Well, I think you already know how we're gonna answer the first question, if you've been paying attention to our lessons. Nowhere does the Bible teach that the choices that men make are completely free from other determining factors and the bible certainly does not teach that the choices that men make are free from the determining counsel of god's will again i want to draw your attention to acts chapter 2 and i keep going to this because it's such a blatant obvious uh, example peter proclaims men of israel hear these words Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Now notice the two truths that this passage upholds for us. First, that the murder of Christ was at the hands of lawless men. These men made real choices and they chose to murder Christ and they are held accountable to God for those, that evil choice. But notice too, the murder of Christ occurred, quote, by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Clearly then, this evil act was not free in the sense in which free willers maintain. The Bible has no problem asserting that one, men chose to do something evil and that two, such choices happened according to God's determined purpose and plan. Well, Jason, I guess it's just a contradiction. I mean, or at least it's an apparent contradiction. beloved it's not even a contradiction it's not even an apparent contradiction remember that a contradiction exists when we say that something is and is not at the same time and in the same sense so if we assert that God decrees all things what is the contradictory assertion to that that God did not decree all things And so if a person argues that God decreed all things, but then turns right around and argues that, well, God didn't decree the choices of men, now you've got a contradiction. Because either he decreed all things or he didn't. And to maintain both is irrational and foolish. But beloved, do we create a contradiction in saying that God, by God decreeing all things, that he includes the choices that men make? No, it's not a contradiction. In fact, the point that we are making about the choices of men is merely an extension of the assertion that God decreed all things. We are simply detailing or unfolding what the all is included in the all things. Again, no contradiction exists until you take that word choice or that word will and define it in such a way that you remove God in his sovereign rule, out of the equation, which is what people practically do when they argue for free will. And of course, the Bible does no such thing over and over and over again. As we have already seen, the Bible upholds those two realities, that men make choices and that those choices are not free from God's determined purpose and plan. Furthermore, does the assertion of free will even resolve the problem to begin with? I love something that Gordon Clark points out here. Clark wrote a chapter called God and Evil. I highly recommend you read it. He writes, quote, let us assume that man's will is free in the sense we're talking about. Let us assume that these questions have been answered in the affirmative. It would still remain to be shown that free will solves the problem of evil. This then is the immediate inquiry. Is the theory of free will, even if true, a satisfactory explanation of evil in a world created by God. Reasons, compelling reasons, would now be given for a negative answer. Even if man were, were as able to choose good as evil, even if a sinner could choose Christ just as easily as he could reject him, it would be totally irrelevant to the fundamental problem. Free will was put forward to relieve God of responsibility for sin, but this it does not do. And then Clark gives this helpful analogy to drive this point home. Listen to this analogy. Suppose there was a lifeguard stationed on a dangerous beach. That's not hard for us to imagine, living here in Florida. In the breakers, a boy is being sucked out to sea by a strong undertow. He cannot swim. He will drown without powerful aid. It will have to be powerful, for as drowning sinners do, he will struggle against his rescuer but the lifeguard simply sits on his high chair and watches him drown. Perhaps he may shout a few words of advice and say, hey, use your free will. After all, it was of his own free will that the boy went off into the surf. The guard didn't push him in there or interfere with him in any way. The guard merely permitted him to go in and permitted him to drown. Now, would an Armenian now include that the lifeguard thus escapes culpability. This illustration, says Clark, with its finite limitations, is damaging enough as it is. It shows that permission of evil, as contrasted with positive causality, does not relieve a lifeguard from responsibility. But that's not all. Clark goes on to say, and yet the illustration does not do full justice to the actual situation, to reality. For unlike the boy who exists in relative independence of the lifeguard, in actuality, God made the boy and made the ocean too. Now, if the guard who is not a creator at all is responsible for permitting the boy to drown, even if the boy is supposed to have entered the surf of his own free will, does not God who made them appear in worse light Surely an omnipotent God could have either made the boy a better swimmer or made the ocean less rough or at least have saved him from drowning. In the quote. And so we see here from this analogy that asserting this notion of free will doesn't even resolve the problem. It just makes it worse. There are a series of questions that I like to ask people. And I'll close with this similar to this analogy, but by Clark, that really cuts to the heart of the matter. And as you hear these questions, I I want you to think about these during the week. First, I'll ask this, does God know everything? And has he always known everything? The answer I've gotten every time that I've ever asked that is yes, absolutely. Then I'll ask this question. Well, before God created Adam, did God know that Adam would rebel against him and plunged the world into sin and death? Again, the answer I've gotten every time is yes. And if you think about it, it has to be yes to be answered yes to the first question. But then I'll drop this question on. If God knew before he created Adam that Adam was going to mess things up, why did God proceed to create him anyways? Was God obligated to create Adam? Was God being forced by someone or something else to create Adam? Why did he do it? I mean, put these questions of free will aside for the moment. It doesn't matter. Why did did God go on with his plans to create man, knowing full well, as you've just admitted, that man was going to rebel and mess things up? You know, I have asked that question literally probably hundreds of times in person, online, in every single time, you know what the answer is? I don't know. Now think about that. Let that sink in for a moment. What am I essentially asking? Why are we here? What's the ultimate purpose? What is the end game in all of this? I'm not asking about you know, what you plan on doing with school and marriage and that's all great. Fine and dandy, but that stuff's going to go away. It eventually fades. What is the ultimate goal here? Why are we here? What is our purpose? Does it shock you that there are so many Christians running around who would answer that question? I don't know. So I want you to think about that this week. Be contemplating that. God knew what was going to happen. So why did he proceed to create us anyways? Is there a purpose? And what is that purpose? Well, Lord willing, we will continue uh, this part on free will, and we'll eventually get to answering that very question.